Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for our latest edition of the Freshfields MedTech Podcast. I'm Vanita Kailasanath, a life sciences and tech transactions partner in the Silicon Valley office of Freshfields. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Tynan, a principal in healthcare services at Corn Ferry. Uh, among other things, she's a modern healthcare top 25 emerging leader and recent author of the book Inclusive Sponsorship. Thanks so much for taking time to chat with me today, Jamie. Thank you, Benita. I'm excited to be here. Would love to hear a little bit more about your path to where you are today, including your decision to write a book. Well, Benita, I have to say that my path, my career path, is not a straight line, and it has not been. And when I think about my decision to write the book, Inclusive Sponsorship, it was really born out of major milestones in my career where I had a tremendous amount of support. I, I didn't come to healthcare immediately from undergraduate school thinking that was what I wanted my career to be. I actually wanted to work in banking. So I got my degree in finance. I thought I wanted to work in retail banking. And after two years, I realized how much I hated it. I didn't enjoy it at all. And it was a bit jarring because so early in my career, I realized that the thing that I wanted to do or thought that I wanted to do ended up being something of the complete opposite. I remember talking to a mentor of mine because I was at this crossroads and he said to me, you know, you might want to consider actually doing consulting, right? You might develop some transferable skills. You'll get to learn different industries and that might be a really great door opener for you when you think about your next steps. So I joined consulting. I was at Deloitte for a considerable amount of time, specifically in our healthcare practice, and loved it. And at the same time, I was having some personal issues with healthcare with some members of my family that I was taking care of. And it just seemed like a natural fit to be able to use my business skills in the healthcare setting. And up until that point, I thought, if you wanted to work in healthcare, you had to be a doctor or a nurse. I didn't really understand or appreciate that you could have a business career in healthcare. And so after some time, I ended up working for a client for several years in corporate strategy, loved every minute of it. I think it's so important, especially as health systems are growing and expanding and offering more services to have someone with a strategic mindset that can really lead in that way is an amazing thing to do. And it was around the pandemic when I was at another crossroads in my career of thinking what might be the next chapter for me. I had been contacted by a recruiter to join a different health system. That wasn't really the right opportunity for me. But at the end of the call, they mentioned, you know, you have such a great passion for people and diversity, equity, and inclusion. You might consider becoming a recruiter. And I remember thinking it was so odd because I'd never worked in health, I mean, in um, uh, talent acquisition or HR. And after about 30 conversations, I made that transition into executive search where I can marry my passion for healthcare and my passion for finding or helping executives find their next role. And when I think about the book, Inclusive Sponsorship, and I think about 
those major decisions, those pivots that I made in my career, I had very vocal and supportive sponsors who, again, introduced me to people in their network, nominated me for industry awards. My first executive role in healthcare came from a sponsor that went all the way up to the CEO to get approval for my promotion. And so I felt it was so important, especially as we talk about increasing diversity and leadership, that we also have a conversation about the importance of not just sponsorship, but inclusive sponsorship as the game changer to really propelling women and especially women of color into senior leadership roles in healthcare. Wow, Jamie, it's such an interesting path. And I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> I, I think I'd like to, to begin with, walk us through what inclusive sponsorship means as opposed to sponsorship, which might be the term that I think folks are more familiar with. Yeah. Well, usually when people talk about sponsorship or when they have questions about sponsorship in general, they're always asking what the difference is between mentorship and sponsorship, right? And really quickly, mentorship, most people understand it's having someone in your network that you can reach out to for advice, that's there to help you navigate challenging situations at work. Really, they're almost like in a lot of ways, a coach and an advisor to you to help you through some of those challenges that you're dealing with from a professional and a personal side. Sponsorship kind of takes mentorship to the next level, and that person is your advocate, and they are taking action on your behalf, and they're inviting you into the room where key decisions are being made, or they're, again, making warm introductions into your network or into their network to make sure that you have visibility and exposure. But traditionally, when we talk about sponsorship, most people fall victim, most sponsors, I should say, fall victim to what's called the similarity bias, right? So because sponsorship is a little bit more of a risky proposition than mentorship, you're, you know, you're putting your name behind someone, you tend to find people to sponsor that look like you that have similar experiences, whether you grew up in the same hometown or you went to the same school or maybe the same church, you have something in common that allows them to feel more comfortable and familiar with you. But inclusive sponsorship is really helping to motivate executives to go beyond and fight similarity bias and find people that don't look like them that absolutely need the exposure and the visibility that traditionally might not have, right? So instead of always sponsoring someone that looks like you, you're looking at underrepresented populations. You're looking at people that come from different backgrounds, different diverse experiences, and opening up your political capital and your social capital for the betterment of their career. So inclusive sponsorship is more about thinking about how you can step into your sponsorship as a leadership competency with a diverse lens behind it. That's so fantastic. Would love to hear more about, you know, some examples on how you've seen greater diversity in leadership affecting the healthcare industry, affecting med tech in particular. I would say over the past few years, we've seen an explosion in innovation um, specifically around technology in healthcare, and it's been amazing to see. And when we think about diversity and leadership, I've seen it from a couple of different angles. 
First and foremost, we are seeing more investment in organizations and technology that are led by diverse leaders, right? So we're seeing um, people founding startup companies or VCs or other ways to support leaders who are trying to solve very challenging problems around healthcare inequity, um, which is heartwarming because there's such an opportunity especially over the past three years, of creating greater access to healthcare for underserved populations. So we're seeing more investment specifically in those types of organizations. We're also seeing more entrepreneurs that are trying to solve these problems, right? Starting mental health startups or trying to create an environment where women like myself, who I identify as a Black woman, people like myself that are looking for culturally competent care and connecting me with providers who can provide that to me and I can feel safe in knowing that my doctor is looking at me as a whole person, not just the summation of different chronic diseases that I have and wants to solve for me as a whole person. So we're seeing investment, more investment pouring in from that perspective. We're seeing more people stepping into leadership and wanting to start organizations and businesses that are solving healthcare inequity. And then we're just having more conversation in leadership about not just representation, but making sure we're inclusive from a patient perspective in a lot of these products and services so that we can offer the best you know, opportunities for better outcomes for patients as well. So wonderful that you highlighted, I think, a lot of the positive progress that we made. You know, one of the things that's concerned me as I've looked back on the pandemic is, were there certain areas where essentially existing health disparities among some of the underrepresented populations in clinical trials, folks who don't really have as much of a voice in healthcare, sometimes elderly, sometimes women of color. How have some of those health disparities actually been exacerbated by some of the challenges brought by the pandemic? One of the things that I think over time we have taken for granted collectively when we talk about healthcare when we talk about digital health is around not just access because digital health has really helped to create access for a lot of people, but the assumption that everyone has the same access to things like broadband internet, right? And a lot of digital tools are based on the assumption that as a patient, I have a computer and I have access to high-speed internet, and I have access to a camera so that I can get on camera with my doctor and have a two-way exchange. And there is this digital divide that exists where a lot of communities do not have access to broadband internet. And this inequity that continues to exist, and I know a lot of organizations in the government are trying to fight against, around what they call digital redlining, where you have service providers that are being discriminatory in their practices around deploying and maintaining broadband internet structures, right? And so there is this inequity just inherently because of the lack of widespread access to things like broadband internet that make it easier for women of color, elderly, people in rural populations to gain access to the tools that are going to help them stay healthier. The other thing that I think also exists is there is an assumption in a lot of ways that people of color and also elderly 
don't want to engage digitally. And I think that that is something that we also have to fight against some of those myths, right? I mean, there are a lot of different surveys out there that talk about how people of color are actually more likely to use telehealth than people that are do not identify as a person of color. And so there is absolutely an appetite to engage in a digital way. The challenge is how do you reach the, to those communities? How do you find ways to get people like myself to want to participate, to want to have access to the same tools that everyone else does? And so it's, it's kind of like um, a two-pronged challenge where as co- collectively, we need to be encouraging better access to either internet or everyone has smartphones these days. How do we engage um, via smartphones in a way that's protected, right? Because people are always concerned about health information being exchanged. But how do we use the tools that we have to get more engagement in your healthcare, medication adherence, all the things that will help reduce those health inequities and those health disparities? I love the way you articulated that. Have you seen any particular approaches that meta companies have taken that have helped some of these vulnerable populations? I would probably include undocumented immigrants among them to feel safer and and included when engaging in some of these med tech products and services. Yeah, well, the issue around health information and health safety, I think, is an important one for everybody, but especially for vulnerable populations like undocumented immigrants. And I think that the first thing that has to really happen, especially if you are a healthcare provider or you're in healthcare delivery, is that you absolutely have to make sure that patients feel that their information remains private that it's not shared with law enforcement, right? Because there's always a skepticism, particularly with underrepresented populations, that your data is being used for purposes beyond healthcare. And so you have a responsibility in healthcare delivery to make sure that patients feel like their data is going to be secure. So creating a process where we can understand and have transparency around consent, right? So how is my health data being used, disclosing how it's being used and being transparent about that if my data is being used beyond the four walls of the hospital, right? The other thing that is really important is that the data that's being captured has to be for clinical purposes, and it needs to be encrypted, and there needs to be additional layers of security. And you have to educate patients on that and making sure that they really understand that their information is being safe and and what measures are you taking to make sure that that information is being safe. There's a lot of technology that uses third-party applications, right? So how are you updating your privacy and security policies to be more inclusive? Are you ensuring that your policies are being translated into other languages so that you know patients can understand them. But really, the onus is coming down to both the healthcare provider and also federal agencies to have better guidance on how they're partnering with vendors, third-party applications, how are they developing these secure telehealth platforms overall. And so organizations that are being inclusive and culturally competent and just being transparent around how data is being used is one way that we're seeing that inclusion evolving when it comes to getting more underrepresented populations to participate in their healthcare and digital health. But it also comes down to, again, 
making sure that you are being inclusive and reaching out to communities that have been traditionally marginalized and involving them in their care, being culturally competent and educating them on the process is key. I can tell you've done a lot of thinking about this topic. Have you seen any sort of traps for the unwary when companies are trying to become culturally competent, but sometimes have missteps? Or on the flip side, have you seen any kind of best practices or outreach that has gone really well? You know, there's always traps when it comes to not just moving towards culturally competent care, but diversity, equity, and inclusion in general. And I think it does start with educating your providers, doctors, nurses, on the unique needs of patients that come from underrepresented populations. But it doesn't stop there, right? Whether you are directly impacting patients, or maybe you work for an organization in more of a corporate setting that deals in healthcare delivery, it's really important that everyone understands that this is an epidemic of itself. You have patients that are having really negative outcomes from simple areas of just engaging with their doctor where they're not being heard or a lot of assumptions are being made about their care just because of their race or their gender or their sexual orientation. So it goes beyond simply educating. It is weaving DE&I into the fabric of your organization as a value set. The other thing, the other pitfall that we're starting to see, especially because digital health deals with a lot of data, and there's a groundswell of interest in wanting to leverage things like artificial intelligence, is that if the data itself lacks diversity, or if it's biased in some way, and you're using that data from an algorithm perspective to be able to make predictions on patient diagnoses, if the data is bad, then the outcomes for underrepresented patients is also going to be flawed as well. So even though there is an interest in wanting to use technology and use science and use AI to be able to help create better outcomes for patients, you have to really think about is that data inclusive? Or like you talked earlier, Vanita, about clinical trials being inclusive. You need more participation to make sure that the data is rich, that it applies to more than one population set, um, so that the outcomes overall for the patient can be what's needed for them. And so those are some of the common pitfalls. And I think that organizations that really from the top down, instill DEI as a value. They weave it into everything they do, into all their processes, from hiring to retaining talent to engaging with patients, are the ones that are doing well. You know, it's really interesting. Earlier, as part of our International Women's Day celebrations, Freshfields actually hosted a discussion on debiasing AI. So as I listened to you, I heard a lot of kind of echoes of some of those conversations around essentially kind of garbage in, garbage out, right? Where you have this notion that AI will solve a lot of problems. You know, it's almost AI washing in a sense. Oh, we're super engaged. We're using AI to, you know, employ new techniques in order to ensure more equitable access and and cure all of the ills in the system. Yeah. Whereas AI is not just this magical solution that you just introduce. It, it really is such a creature of the data on which it's trained. And when you look at where all of the data has come from traditionally, it's incredibly underrepresented. 
That's right. And I will be the first to tell you that I am such a proponent of using science and using advanced technologies, precision medicine, all different types of ways to get better outcomes for patients. But we can't treat it as a silver bullet. And we really do need to start with the data and making sure that we are being inclusive in the data that we collect. And the only way to collect good data is to make sure that underrepresented populations are being included, that they're participating in their care, and that they have trust. And I think that's what it all comes down to is how are healthcare organizations developing trust with patients who are people of color or elderly or from other underrepresented groups. Wonderful. I know that our time together is coming to an end. So would love to hear any additional closing thoughts you might have on med tech, digital health innovations you're tracking going forward, anything in that vein? Yeah, well, maybe just a couple of things. First of all, I, I'm very bullish on leadership being more representative because, again, when you have representation in the C-suite, you can have these conversations about inclusion in the data, about ways to reach vulnerable populations, and it becomes part of a strategic conversation and not a check-the-box conversation where we're in a moment, at least here in the U.S., we're in a moment where we're trying to, again, advance DE&I. It's about the patient and making sure that all patients can be cared for. And so when you have better representation, there's certainly surveys and research that talks about better business outcomes. But even aside from the business outcomes, you have better strategy because you're being more inclusive about how you're going to take care of the people that come to you for care. So that's one. The other thing I would say, particularly for med tech organizations or any digital health company, is really lean into culturally competent care. It is something that I'm extremely bullish on because, again, when you think about how you're building trust with patients, they are in a vulnerable state. They're coming to you for care. They're coming to you with a lot of their chronic challenges, things that are very personal to them. And in order to build that trust, you have to absolutely find a way to connect and make them feel safe. And I believe that culturally competent care is a way to make patients safe. And there's one in particular that I have loved watching, which is Health in Her Hue, which is around, you know, a digital platform that helps women of color connect to providers, doulas, other types of physicians that offer culturally competent or culturally sensitive care. And that's the beauty of digital health is that before it might've been very difficult to find a provider that is culturally competent. But with this platform and other platforms that are coming online, it's very easy to find a provider that I can develop a rapport with and a trust with. And so as you're thinking about these innovations going forward, leaning into culturally competent care, I think is the way to go. Couldn't agree more, Jamie. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And listeners, thank you for tuning in for this latest edition of the Fresh Hills MedTech podcast. Stay tuned for the next one. Take care, everyone.